My name is Janice Fung, and I am a tenure-track assistant professor in the psychology department at Cal State University San Marcos. Broadly speaking, my work is concerned with improving the quality of life for children and adolescents with autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, and their families. And this can mean a lot of different things. It can mean helping children with autism learn how to have better executive functioning skills and better social skills by including them in um, something like a martial art intervention. It can also mean helping stakeholders like parents and professionals better engage with children with autism and to help improve the quality of those relationships. So it can mean exploring different ways that we can better support and integrate individuals with autism into the community. Um, I hope that my work can help us better understand people with autism and uh, better include people so that we can have a, a more inclusive space within our community. Thank you for tuning in. This is my post-grad life. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There, you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Joining me today, we have Professor Janice Fung, uh, who is the first of our uh, post-grad lifers. So she's, uh, she escaped that life, she is done, and now she is a professor. Congratulations. Um, we know each other because we occasionally punch each other on the weekend in the face. Um, we, we go to the same martial arts studio, which is how we know each other. So uh, thank you very much for coming, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about your research, what you've done, and what you're doing now at Cal State San Marcos? Sure. So broadly speaking, my research is concerned with helping children and adolescents with autism and their families essentially lead happier and healthier lives in a nutshell. Um, my most recent research involved implementing a martial art intervention for children with autism. And I was specifically looking at improving their executive functioning as well as their social skills through collaboration with a local martial arts studio where I helped train the coaches in how to interact with kids with autism. We had peer buddies who were actually typically developing kids uh, without autism that were enrolled in the other kids' classes, and they helped out in the class as well. And um, by the end of the study, we found that there were improvements in both executive functioning and social skills in the kids with autism after they did the martial arts intervention and not for the kids that um, were in a control group that did not do the martial arts intervention. Awesome. So social skills sounds pretty straightforward. It's how we interact with each other. But um, could you rigorously define what it means for uh, people in your field, which is the Department of Psychology? I forgot to mention that. Department of Psychology, what does it mean for you guys? And could you also define executive function as well? Sure. So um, executive functioning is... It's kind of a broad umbrella term. It includes a host of cognitive abilities that include, um, that ultimately help us uh, strive for and obtain goals. So executive functioning can include things like being able to regulate our emotions, um, being able to control our impulses. Um, it includes working memory, which is like um, holding one thing in mind while also mentally manipulating it. Like when you're trying to do like the 15% tip uh, without, you know, without writing it down, uh, doing it in your head. Um, it involves planning, um, being able to problem solve. All of these things fall under this broad umbrella of executive functioning. And in general, um, children with autism really struggle with 
this executive functioning. So essentially it's the cognitive ability that um, really continues to develop well into adolescence and into um, early adulthood. Uh, but children and adolescents with autism tend to especially struggle with these abilities. Could you explain to us a little bit about the details of the, the specific findings of your work? So we so one of the strengths of the study was that we measured executive functioning in multiple ways. So one way that we measured it was based off of parent report. And that's really important because parents are able to tell us what they're seeing at home and what they're seeing or maybe hearing about being reported at school. So that's really important for us to have a parent report measure. And another measure that we had that was really important was we, when we had the children come into the lab, we had them do an executive functioning task on a computer. And that was an important measure because it was an objective measure. And so sometimes parents are biased. And in our study, um, obviously parents are not blind to whether their kid's in the experimental condition or the control condition because you have to take your kid to the martial arts intervention. And so it was really important for us to have some sort of objective measure where we can measure executive functioning based off of what the child can do and not just what the parents said that they can do. Uh, so one of the exciting findings that we had was that we found the improved executive functioning in the kids who got the martial arts intervention and not in the control group. And we found it on both of the measures. So we found it on both the parent report and on the objective computer task. And so the, both of those were able to supplement one another and uh, helped us really believe in the strength of, um, of our findings. That's kind of incredible. So both the parents were happy with it and they did seem to be better doing better in the tasks you gave them. That's kind of, it's pretty cool. Uh, could you tell me about how you fell into this line of work? Yeah, so I started working as a developmental interventionist right after I got out of undergrad. And it was uh, for a nonprofit organization where we did social skills training for kids with autism. We also did parent coaching. So we, I would do um, in-home visits where I would help parents learn how to engage with their children with autism. So that was a part of my job. And I really, and that was really my first experience working with families with autism. And I, I really fell in love with it. Um, I realized that First of all, children with autism are no different than other children. They're still children first. And um, there are parts about their autism that are challenging, but there are so many strengths that I think that we often miss when we're so focused on what they can't do. So I really enjoyed that job because it helped me really connect with families so that families can learn to enjoy one another more. And um, I actually still have a family that I still keep in touch with. And um, whenever the research got really hard and when, you know, you're just running stats or you're just looking at numbers or trying to read the literature and um, you forget a little bit about why you're in this work. I often think about the families that um, really influenced me to do this work. And uh, one of the kids, I met him when he was eight and I was his therapist and um, he's actually 18 now. Um, he's a senior in high school, which I can't believe, uh, but I still talk to them. I still visit every once in a while. And I think that as a researcher, there's, especially somebody who's in psychology, there is nothing more important than remembering why you got into this work to begin with. Um, data is not just numbers. Data are people, and you have to remember who you're doing the research for and who you're supposed to be helping. And so um, thinking about what got me into this line of work really helped me uh, think about why this work was important. Certainly one of the impressions I got from, you know, uh, knowing you and punching each other in the face, as we said, uh, is that you certainly do have this commitment towards inclusion. Uh, do you, would you say that maybe, did you always feel that way? Or perhaps were you, do you feel like you were shaped by the work that you were in? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that um, 
for me going through undergrad and then um, I didn't actually start doing the autism work till about halfway through graduate school when I started um, with working with the advisor that ended up chairing my dissertation. And um, when we're talking about inclusion, I think it's really interesting because people with autism, people with disabilities are often excluded from society. And um, there are lots of other social categories that people might fall into that do result in them maybe being a little bit excluded or feeling like they don't belong. And I think that my experience as a first generation college student um, kind of helped me realize how important inclusion was. And that's actually how I got into meeting you (laughs) right through the martial arts community (laughs) was um, when I was an undergrad, I really felt like I needed a place to belong. I do mean, I didn't, I didn't have that many friends. Um, and I mean, I had friends, but I didn't have a community where I really felt like I belonged. And I went to undergrad at UCLA. So it's giant. There are so many people there. And it's like, you want to make friends in your major, but you kind of just see people in class. And sometimes people are really competitive. So no one wants to study with you. And so it's kind of hard to make a community of friends when you're at a very competitive space like that. And um, I ended up joining martial arts. I I tried a Muay Thai class and I really loved it. And uh, martial arts gave me an inclusive community. And so this idea of inclusivity, I think has always kind of been uh, a pillar of my development of recognizing that um, I needed a community to be a part of. And then as I started getting into this work, realizing how often people with disabilities need a place to belong. And so that's kind of what led me to put two and two together. Well, that's an interesting trajectory. You didn't, it seems like you didn't quite find the words to put all this together until you were deep into this work. Yes, absolutely. I think it was um, only upon reflection did I realize that these values that I held uh, really did influence my my research ideas. So about that, uh, were you able to, so you mentioned a little bit that you didn't start this autism work until halfway through your thesis, until through your um, PhD program. Could you tell us a story about that? Yeah, so I started working with an advisor that um, I was very interested in that work, but um, I wasn't really given a lot of freedom to pursue the things that I really wanted to do. So the work that I was really interested in because of my my core values on inclusivity is I was really interested in doing research with vulnerable populations. So specifically, I was interested in working with children with autism and doing research in that line. Um, And that's why I went to grad school to begin with. I was also really interested in exploring other underserved populations like children from low income backgrounds, children um, who um, come from multilingual households. So I was really interested in exploring those populations, but with the person that I worked with before, that just wasn't really possible. So I wasn't able to do that. And then I was fortunate that I started working with another advisor where she was already doing autism work with other students. And so I was really excited when she offered me a GSR position to help her with one of the projects that she was doing with adolescents with autism. And so I very quickly jumped on that because I was finally having this opportunity where I could do the research that I came to grad school to do in the first place. The GSR being graduate student researcher, that's the money set aside for people to do their own projects, essentially. Yes, absolutely. And that was really my first opportunity to do something that I was um, really genuinely excited about, that that was why I came to grad school to do. I myself had to switch advisors halfway through. It wasn't really a switch. Uh, I, I just had to jump onto my uh, other advisor. But I know people in my lab, when my lab collapsed, they had to scramble and find somebody. Uh, and there was that possibility that you'd have to start those five years all over again. Was that, how much of a danger was that? It was very dangerous, actually. Um, I, for those first few years of graduate school, I thought about quitting probably every, every other week. I thought about quitting because I just didn't feel like I belonged there. I didn't feel like it was a good fit 
um, to be working with that person. Um, but I also didn't know what I was supposed to be feeling. I didn't know if my feelings were not validated. If I, It was all in my head. I thought that often. And it wasn't until I started talking to other people did I realize that this was not normal and that I needed to find some other solution. So the transition to changing advisors was very difficult. Um, it was not met with positivity, um, as you would imagine. Um, but I was very fortunate that the person that I ended up working with was so supportive, was so nurturing. And I think that one of the things that I value the most about her is that she genuinely wants her students to succeed because she realizes that her student success reflects upon her and then that's ultimately her success and so the transition was very difficult i actually had to um it took me probably over a year to finally be able to make that decision um i needed to make sure that i had all my ducks lined up in a row i needed to have funding lined up i needed to have research ideas lined up and i needed to make sure that this new person was going to want me as their student. And I was very nervous about how that was going to go. And it wasn't until I had all these things lined up was I finally able to make the change from one advisor to another. But it was it was very difficult. It was a very stressful time. I imagine. Certainly it seemed like it worked out, though. But I guess what would have been the alternative? Honestly, I don't know. I thought about leaving grad school and I don't blame people who do leave grad school. Um, I actually, um, I ended up getting a fellowship where um, I asked them, do I need to stay with the person that I applied with to keep this fellowship? And if I do, you can take the money back because I don't want it. So I was going to make that switch or I was going to leave grad school. Um, I I spent so many nights thinking about what other solution that there was. And I really did try very hard to compromise um, and try to appease both parties. And um, it took a lot of reflection. It took a lot of going to the counseling center and talking it through with somebody else. It ended up I needed to talk to people from grad division and get different perspectives from people all around campus for me to finally realize that there was no compromise here to try to make it work. Um, and I really did talk to a lot of different people to explore these options. And ultimately, I decided that that really was the best decision. Was there a moment you would consider to be kind of the tipping point? Yes, it was when boundaries were crossed and it was when i realized that things were not going to change i thought that once this pivotal thing happened that things would smooth out and things would um calm down and become more normal but it just seemed like it was an escalating situation and that i needed to get out so yes, there was a pivotal event where I realized that um, if I didn't advocate for myself, that no one else was going to do it. I imagine you're tiptoeing around the specifics for a reason. That's I am. Fine. Okay, <laughs> that's perfectly fine. When you were finally able to make that transition, could you uh, talk about sort of the difficulties that came along with being with a new advisor, doing new work? Trying to, did you have to learn new techniques or new methods and stuff like that? How'd that go? Um, the transition to working with a new advisor was actually easier than staying with the old advisor, to be honest. Um, and there were a lot of really positive moments where I realized that this is how it should have been all along. Um, where the very first conference we went to, she invited me to come meet with other colleagues that were in the field and I was like this is what you're supposed to do <laughs> when you're mentoring somebody um, she would I realized when she forwarded an email to me that was like hey I saw this opportunity and I thought you might be interested in it and so 
it wasn't difficult. It was actually a breath of fresh air. Um, I did have to start over in some ways um, where I had to, and I was very stressed out about being able to tell a cohesive story about why I was doing this work before and why I'm doing this different work now. And that was a little bit difficult to figure out how I was going to piece all that together. But um, honestly, my new advisor made things very smooth. She was just so supportive and really genuinely cared about my well-being. And it reflected in these very small actions by just forwarding an email to me that because it made me think it made her think of me and these very small acts were things that I'd never experienced before and so it wasn't that hard um it was hard to start over it was hard to now think of myself as an autism person and not as what I previously thought of myself before so it was kind of like taking on this new role um it was hard to maintain the professionalism in order to not upset the other person, in order to be very careful about not having a reputation in the department. Um, so that I think was very difficult, but working with the new advisor was not difficult at all. It was actually a breath of fresh air. So were you able to finish in five years? Were you able to just take the PH, the, pre the work from the other advisor and just went into the same thesis? Is that how no, it worked? No, actually. So it was completely different, actually. Uh. So you're right. It, it, so it did take a little bit longer. I ended up defending uh, the fall of my seventh year. So it definitely took longer. Um, I did kind of have to start over. I had to reestablish myself in this new field. and um, But it's not like I had to relearn all the literature because I was already doing the, the GSR. So I was familiar with the work. But um, it was actually really exciting to develop my dissertation idea with this new advisor because she supported my idea and she was really excited about it. And that was one of the first times that I had somebody who was really in my corner. Um, so it did take a while, but this was the first time that I was able to do a project that I felt very passionately about. And when people say that their dissertation is their baby, that's like absolutely true with me. I mean, I... I love what it ended up becoming. And um, I don't think that I would be able to say that if I didn't have an advisor who had supported me to go down this route. Sounds like it was worth the time. Uh, certainly seven and a half years for in that position doesn't sound unusual at all. Sounds kind of short, in fact, if anything. It's, not, it's also not unusual given the work that I do uh, because when you work with vulnerable populations, it's hard to recruit, it's hard to keep people in your study. Uh, my study was also very time intensive because it involved work with the community. It involved having families bring their kids to this program multiple times a week. Um, and it was just, it was very involved. So it's not unusual for autism work, especially intervention work. Um, so I'm, I'm just lucky that, um, my cohort was one of the last cohorts where they let us stay that long because I know that that's definitely not the case anymore. Uh, everybody's in and out in five years is the new expectation. And so I think that I'm lucky that I got to stay so long uh, because I have a dissertation that I'm very proud of um, that um, is published, has publishable data. And I was only able to do that because I had this extra time. So it was nice. Now you're in Cal State San Marcos in the Department of uh, Psychology, and I believe that they do a lot of research in Cal States now as well. Could you tell me about sort of the day-to-day -day goings on in your new place? Sure. So one of the things that really drew me to the psychology department at Cal State San Marcos was that they, as a Cal State, really value high-quality teaching, and they also really value high-quality research. And above all of those things, they value the integration of the two together. And so that's what really got me interested in working at CSU San Marcos was that um, I get to work directly with students. I get to mentor students as they're working on projects that I'm interested in. And so it's great because I get to 
connect these two things that I love, which is working directly with students, teaching students, mentoring students, and having them, in essence, help me with my research with um, working with autism families. And so the day-to-day involves, I mean, some some of it's exciting, some of it's a little mundane, right? Um, Sometimes the day-to-day just involves helping students understand what the research process is like. Um, Simple things like how do you open the stats program and how do you enter data into a spreadsheet? Um, Those are sometimes a little bit mundane things, but they're very important things. And then there are some parts that are really exciting where I get to talk to students about how this theoretical stuff that maybe you've read in a class directly applies to this research study that was implemented in real life and what that means in terms of real world implications. So in general, the day-to-day has a lot of these kind of mundane things, um, but it helps to look at what the big picture is. And uh, the most exciting part for me is when I see students get really excited about the work that we're doing. Yeah, certainly most of uh, research is just staring in front of a computer, uh, making sure numbers work. Uh. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's reading. It's a lot of reading. It's oh, a lot yes. of writing. And um, I think that for some students, that's a little bit of an eye opener because they don't realize that that's truly what research is. I mean, I don't know if they think some people for research, you're, I don't know, like putting things in beakers and pipetting things. But in psych research, most of it's just sitting in front of a computer. Uh, What is nice about the work that we do is that we do interface with the community. So one of the things that my RAs will have to do is they'll have to connect with different autism organizations in the community and figure out how we can build partnerships with them because that's how we're going to find our research participants. And so establishing a reputation in the in the community is a really important component of, of our work as well. That's a really valuable skill, being able to cold call people and just make opportunities happen. Yeah, absolutely. And another skill that I think students really value is learning how to talk to other professionals um, and learning about how to kind of incentivize different organizations to be excited about the work that we're doing. Um, It's also a great opportunity for students to learn how to talk to parents in a professional setting. So I think it's a lot of life skills that are going to be useful for the future. This is your first semester teaching, correct? Yes. um, It's we just finished the fourth week out of a 15-week semester. And uh, I'll tell you, it's very different than a quarter system at UCI where 10 weeks and it's done. <laughs> uh, but I like it. I like that I have more time to spend on material. And uh, yeah, so we just started, still feel brand new, still getting my feet wet. Um, they have. Um, I have some students that are interested in working on my research. I actually just went to a panel to recruit some research assistants, so that'll be picking up pretty soon. So now that you're on the other side of grad school and you're in a faculty position, a tenure-track faculty position, has your feelings about grad school changed at all? So when I was in grad school, I really struggled through it and especially towards the end and immediately after I defended I had a lot of moments where I was questioning the value of getting this PhD because it felt like academia was the only route that I was able to go in and as I was looking for different jobs it just It didn't seem like I was qualified for these other ones, and yet I wasn't fully qualified for these ones. So it was a very confusing and stressful time. Um, I am very thankful that I got this position because it really is a dream position that I get to do teaching and research and on top of it all service to the department and to the university and to students. But the process was so stressful that if I didn't get a job, I don't think I would do this. (laughs) And when I think back on how I spent my entire 20s in grad school, um, if I could go back, I don't know if I would do this just because it's so stressful. And 
you have to really, really love the work, which I do. I really, really love this work. But I think for some people, if the objective is just to get in and get out, I don't think that that is enough to help you through it. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I think that if I, if I didn't have this job, <laughs> uh, which is my dream job, if I could do it over again, I think I would do something that was a little bit more practical, that had a very clear result, right? So if you want to be an occupational therapist, you need to get a master's degree in occupational therapy. And then during that time, you learn all the skills that you need to do. And then you take an exam and then you get licensed and then you have everything you need to get this job. I feel like with a PhD, it's not so clear. With a PhD, for some positions, you need a ton of publications. For others, you need a ton of certain software skills. For some, you need a bunch of different teaching skills. It's just so variable that honestly, I don't think your average person going into a PhD program has any idea what they have in store for them coming up. Um, and I definitely discovered all these things along the way. Um, so yeah, I don't, I'm very thankful that I made it through. I'm very happy with the position that I have now, but if I could do it over again, I don't know if I would, I don't think I would. Certainly there are a lot of sentiments in there that I can mirror. Uh, so like I graduated maybe well, I defended a few months ago, and I officially graduated, like, last week. And I was an energy researcher, and here I am making a podcast. This is what I do. <laughs> there are days where I feel like maybe being in grad school was a much more fun time than uh, looking for jobs and post and or post-docs and stuff like that. So I, certainly I, can, I can understand that sentiment, and that perhaps maybe, yeah, all over again, maybe going, like, a more secure route might have been certainly less stressful. But you talked about all the families that you worked with and how you've improved their lives. Aside from that, has there been anything else that kind of kept you going? Yeah. Um, finding different pockets of communities around campus that were outside of the department was definitely one of the things that kept me motivated to continue to be in school. Um, for example, I got involved with a mentoring program that was available through grad division. And um, as a grad student, I actually mentored um, these freshmen throughout their entire first year. And that was something that I found so rewarding because, I mean, these are freshmen. They're 18 years old. This is their first time away from home. Um, they all have imposter syndrome, but they all are too afraid to admit what they don't know. And it was me. That's who I was. Um, and so being able to see myself in these students and then be very open with them about all the ways that I've struggled was actually really it was a wonderful experience because I think that, especially for, for young students, they see you and you just look like you have it all together, right? Like you just look like you're so smart and that like you're just doing all this stuff and you just look like you have yourself together. And I think that a big part of being in grad school is keeping up this facade of perfectionism. And when everybody does that, I think it's very isolating. And so what I found to be very helpful was to be very open about what I was struggling with. And it took me a long time to get to this point, too, to be comfortable with talking about this. And you know who was able to get me to this point was people that I admired, that I thought were awesome rock stars in the department, who disclosed to me that they struggled in these ways. And so I realized that only by being open and honest and genuine in our connections with others can we learn from one another. So as a mentor for this program, you know, when students would, would tell, or when my mentees would say things like, oh, well, I'm really embarrassed to admit that I, 
I'm really struggling in this class, or I'm really embarrassed to admit that um, I'm struggling financially, and um, I'm really embarrassed to speak up in class because I feel like I'm going to say something dumb. And so whenever they would share these experiences with me, I would tell them I've been there too. And I would give them examples of times that I remembered when I really struggled too. And they would be so surprised. They'd be like, well, you? What do you mean you failed at this one thing before? And I was like, yes, because that's how you get to where you are. So I think that for them, it was very, um, it was really refreshing and it was very real for them to hear that somebody that they thought had their life together was still had struggled, had overcome it, became more resilient because of it, and then continues to struggle through other things as well. And I think being able to impart those experiences that I had to younger students, um, that was that was very rewarding for me. And that was something that kept me motivated to stay and, and continue on. I'm uh, beginning to notice a trend here. One of the uh, key things that seem to keep you going is, it seems to revolve around building communities. Yeah, I think that that would absolutely be true. I think that um, without the social support that I got from different pockets of communities in grad school, I don't think that I would have made it through. Um the friends that I met, that I made in my department were really important. The friends that I made outside of my department were important. The friends that I had before I went to grad school who have no idea what grad school is, those are important people because they help you realize that being in grad school is not all that there is. Um, I think having family support is really important. And having a martial arts community was awesome because at the end of a long, stressful day, you go to train and then you step on the mat and you just leave it all off the mat. And you can go and get punched in the face. And um, it's very cathartic, you know, it's very enjoyable. And um, I got to be around people who uh, don't care about research or data or anything and they just care about martial art. And like, this is kind of cool. Like, I like being in this other community where we'll just share this hobby together and we will ignore all this other stuff that's stressful to me. So yeah, I think having not only one community to belong in, but multiple pockets of community to belong in are extremely important to help support you as you're going through grad school or going through any other adversity, frankly. We've danced around the answer to this question quite a bit so far. But could you spell out explicitly for us how you feel you've grown throughout grad school and how that translates now that you're very firmly on the other side? You're, you're a professor now. Yeah, I think that the way that I've grown the most is that I've learned that I need to advocate for myself. And if I didn't advocate for myself, that nobody else was going to do it for me. That's the biggest thing that I've learned. Um, and I don't want it to sound negative, but I think in essence, people are self-serving and people are selfish. And especially when you're in a competitive environment like grad school, everyone's, a lot of people are looking out for themselves. And um, if you're too busy looking out for other people and not looking out for yourself, then that's when you run into trouble. And I think that's where I ran into trouble was worrying about the success of others and not being able to speak up for myself and not being able to advocate for myself. So I think that's how I've grown the most. And I didn't grow this way on my own, right? I had um, a really wonderful friend in grad school that um, always told me to advocate for myself. And I would, I always felt a little bit cowardly <laughs> because she was so strong and she was always able to say what she wanted to say and speak up for herself. And so I very much admired that and uh, really sought to emulate that. And um, I think with her support, I got so much better at it. 
So um, I think that would be one way that I've definitely grown in terms of learning how to advocate for myself. I think the other way that I have grown is I've realized that I know more (laughs) than I thought that I did before. And I think that imposter syndrome is always going to stay there with me. But actually, the further and further that I get from grad school, the more that I realize that I actually know stuff. (laughs) And I was, you know, I was when I first finished grad school, it was like, it's so nice that people call you a doctor, right? But I didn't feel like I knew anything. And now that it's been, I mean, I defended December of 2017. So it's been like, we're approaching the two year mark since I defended. And now I realize I actually do know stuff. And that's really exciting. (laughs) So that's another way that I've grown. And I'm still unsure about a lot of things, but I'm actually very comfortable saying what I don't know. And I'm confident in in myself of being able to say, I don't know, but we can find out, or I don't know, but I think it could be this possibly. And I don't think that I would have been able to do that eight years ago. I wouldn't be able to admit that I didn't know what I was talking about. So being the first person to go to college in your family, you mentioned, uh, you've come a long way, went to through grad school and now you're a professor. Uh, were there any difficulties, I guess, that came out of that that sort of, you know, being the first one to go to college? Yeah, so I think some of the difficulties, um, I mean, first of all, my family has been tremendously supportive. Um, they've always supported that I pursue whatever it was that I was passionate about. So they've been really wonderful. I think one of the struggles that I did have with my family was getting them to understand what grad school actually meant. Um, that um, a PhD actually doesn't mean a huge rise in your income. <laughs> that was hard uh, because my parents, I think, still think that you're a doctor, so you should be making a lot of money. And that, I think, is something that's like a little bit hard to explain, uh, which makes sense, right? Like, how do you get the highest possible education you could possibly get and still not make that much money or, you know, still make only a moderate amount of money? So that, I think, has been a little bit difficult. Um, I think for them to even just understand, like, what research is and what that entails, uh, I think just because of the cultural differences, I think that's been a little bit difficult. Um, In part, I think another cultural difference is the fact that I'm spending so much time in school that um, I think for a little while, uh, my mom was a little bit worried about that I was neglecting like your personal life sort of thing, you know, that like, um, you know, like very traditional cultural values of like, are you going to get married and have children? And it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm doing this right now. <laughs> like I'm focusing on this thing right now and it's going to take me seven years. So no, I'm not doing that right now. And so I think just having those cultural differences made it a little bit hard to navigate. Um, Or even the fact that like, when I was in grad school, I was working all the time. And my parents were very supportive, but also like didn't understand why I couldn't just like, can you just take the day off? And I was like, well, that's not something I can do. Like I have to do all these things and I don't have the luxury of just not doing them. So I think those were kind of just difficult for them to, or for, for me to get them to understand, but they were very supportive and they understood it. Um, so I'm very thankful that I had that. Um, I think another struggle of being a first generation student, especially at, at the graduate level is, um, it kind of seems, well, it's true, right? That a lot of people who are at the PhD level, like a lot of them are not first generation. And I was very embarrassed by what my background was because, you know, there was somebody in my cohort where his uncle is some super, super famous person. And there's another person who they were another famous scientist. And I didn't have any of that. Um, I didn't even have parents that went to college. And so that I feel like was a source of embarrassment for me at the beginning when I was taking all those courses because 
I didn't even know what I didn't know. And that was really hard. Um, so I think that would be the other struggle was just feeling like I had to keep up with all of these other people that already felt like they had a leg up before, right? Like some people might come in and they um, already have all these connections that I didn't have. So I think that was really hard too. Do you have any advice for people that are still in it in grad school? Yes. So I want to tell people who are still in grad school that um, there is an ending in sight. And even though it seems like it's going to go on forever, there is an ending. Frankly, I think the most stressful part of my time was in my last three months where I was like, I'm just going to quit. I can't do this. And it was like that final stretch was the hardest. And so there is an end in sight. I think another important thing that I've learned about being able to get through grad school was that you are not alone in the way that you feel and you are not wrong in the way that you feel. I think that the struggle is very valid and I feel that any negative emotions, any um, feelings of hopelessness like those are very very normal and the only way that we can normalize that is if we talk about it um and that's why i really wanted to come talk and do this podcast with you because i want people to know that um it's not a smooth path and you might see someone like me who's so lucky that they got the dream of this tenure track position, but it wasn't a smooth road to get here. And it was a lot of self doubt. It was a, it was just this very long and stressful process. And I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't learn how to ask people for help. So I think that's really important. Um, and then building off that, my, I think my last piece of advice would be to not be afraid to ask for help. Again, because UCI and other, you know, grad school in general, it's just so competitive that everybody wants to look like they know what they're doing. But the reality is that nobody really knows and nobody has everything together. And it took me so long to realize that, um, the more I talk about things that are challenging to me and the more that I seek out help, the better that I feel about it. And actually, um, I it took me until my last year, I think, of graduate school to finally book a, um, an appointment at the counseling center because I realized that I was angry all the time. I was sad all the time. I just didn't enjoy joy being around anybody anymore and then somebody said to me um like what would you tell your friend if if you saw your friend struggling the same way that you're struggling what would you tell them and it's very embarrassing that as somebody who was in the field of psychology like to be so um in denial <laughs> that I, I didn't even seek out help for myself so then finally i was like you know what I don't really guess I don't really have anything else to lose. I'm already so miserable. I might as well go. And so I went and it was so helpful. I think like within like the first like five minutes, she she asked me, so why are you here? And I just started crying. <laughs> and I guess I just, I realized that I'd held it in for so long. I was trying to keep my shit together for so long. And for someone to ask me, like, why are you here? I was like, well, shit, like, because I've needed to be here for a really, really long time. And so, and I apologize if I'm cursing on your podcast, oh, no. but I just, it, it was like an eye-opening experience for me. And there's just so much, like, stigma and negativity that surrounded asking for help and asking for advice that it took me so long to come to this conclusion and I wish that I'd done it sooner. I wish that I'd reached out to people sooner. So that would be my third piece of advice is that you're not alone and um, it's okay to ask for help and that it's okay that you're not okay <laughs> because only by asking for help are you going to get to the point where you're going to be okay. 
Thank you for saying all of that. Uh, on that same on on that same vein, I'd like to point out now. Now you're in this position. You have a tenure track, but you also mentioned there are a lot of times where you wanted to quit. I think that's uh, that's worth mentioning that it is hard and bumpy. Absolutely, and I think that I got very fortunate with this position. I think a lot of stars kind of lined up um, where I got lucky with this position. But um, I also wanted to note that if I didn't. It doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It doesn't mean that I like failed at this PhD life, right? If I don't get this position, because I think that ultimately everything works out. And sometimes you're going to apply to a bunch of jobs, which I did actually. This is my second round on the job market. First time I applied, I didn't get anything. I got nothing. I didn't even get rejections. I just got silence. Um, and so. Sometimes things will take you on a certain path, and it's not what you expected. And sometimes you just kind of have to roll with the punches. Um, not to do another like martial yeah, arts yeah, pun, yeah, but yeah. it's true. Sometimes things are not going to pan out the way that you wanted them to, and that's okay too. And certainly, I hope that people that are where you once were can find the strength to do what it like whatever it takes to be themselves. And I certainly hope that as well. Final question. When you have to stress eat, what is your go-to? Oh, that's a great question. So it's going to be a tie. Um, I love kettle-cooked potato chips. So that's a good one. Um, if I can't, or if I can even do better than that, I get um, well-done animal-style fries from In-N-Out. That's another good go-to because it's like the same potato starchiness. Um, and then sometimes if I don't feel like I need something salty, then it's usually something sweet. And then it's usually ice cream, um, coffee, ice cream, if I have to work. <laughs> two birds with one stone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those would be my two binge eating things. Uh, when I was at UCI, I, I went to cha for tea a lot. Because there's the boba, which is the sugar, but then there's also the caffeine, see? So you got to kill two birds with one stone. So that was a good stress-eating thing when I was over there. I could go to get boba milk tea. That was nice, too. All right. Once again, thank you very much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.